Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 31 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And on today's episode, we'll be talking lists, yes or no. There is more to that than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the second half, we're doing two novels by R.C. Sheriff, The Fortnight in September, and Green Gates, both of which are Persephone books. Um, but before we get on to any of that, um, Happy New Year, Rachel. How are you? Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. Um, I'm very well, thank you. Had a lovely couple of weeks off work, which is always nice. Um, I don't really have much to report, really. I've been doing lots of eating and lazing around, which is Christmas, isn't it? Um, Saw two very good um, literary adaptations on TV over Christmas. Did you watch the Agatha Christie? Not yet, actually. It's on my list to watch later, after Christmas, because my dad's a vicar. He he works very hard over Christmas, and they always escape away for a week afterwards, and they have a house they're going to retire to that doesn't have TV or internet. Um, We'll do at some point, I'm sure. But all the good Christmas TV seemed to be on whilst we were there without TV, (laughs) so I've not watched very much. (laughs) (laughs) So no, was it good? it was it was really good. I really enjoyed it, and um, also the there was a Bronte two hour long. Well, it could have been a film really called To Walk Invisible, all about the years of the Bronte sisters when they were first writing and publishing their first novels, so, uh, and the problems they had with their brother. Was that actually good? Because I, I saw a trailer for that, and firstly I thought that's a really stupid title. You should just call it the Brontes. And secondly, I don't know, I saw there'd be lots of them just sort of looking miserably out onto the moors or something. No, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I loved it. And it was so... Um, I really liked the way they hired actresses and actors for it who looked very much like, you know, just ordinary people, and they all sounded appropriately northern. And it was very real and really quite moving. I loved it. Okay. So, yeah. so far, what I, I've caught up with the Emmerdale that I missed and with a uh, <laughs> celebration of Judy Dench. So there's, there's clearly <laughs> other classic Christmas TV that I need to, <laughs> to get on with. Yeah. Um, did you get much reading done over Christmas? Um, I did actually. I read, uh, I read an Agatha Christie, The 450 from Paddington, which I really enjoyed. Oh, I enjoyed that one. To our American listeners, it is. Um, no, called um, What Mrs. McGillicuddy Saw, I believe, in America. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. And I, again, I never see the end coming with Agatha Christie novels. And I was like, oh! you know, the whole way along, I think it's someone else. Um, <laughs> and no, I, I did start to guess towards the end. Um, and I read a very, a book I've had for a while, actually, but never got around to reading. It's called, it's a non-fiction. It's about Victoria and Albert and time around when Albert died and the consequences called Magnificent Obsession by Helen Rappaport, which was really good. Mm. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was quite a quick read as well for a non-fiction. And now I'm halfway through Dombey and Son, which I'm reading for my course, which is a Charles Dickens novel, a lesser known Charles Dickens novel, I feel. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I'm actually enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would because I'm not a huge Dickens fan. Um, but it's, you know, it's 900 pages long. There's just no so, need. There's never any need. There really isn't. No, there really isn't a need. Um, but it's, you know, thankfully I'm a quick reader, so hopefully it shouldn't take me too long, but it's, uh, it's certainly a struggle. How about you? How I bet you've read about a million books. Well, I read quite a few, yes. Um, I, <laughs> I also read Nagatha Christie. I read Third Girl and it was terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's quite disappointing. Well, 
so Ariadne Oliver is in it, and and people who listen to our Agatha Christie episode may remember how much I love her. Um, she's sort of the portrait of Agatha Christie that she's put in the book as a, a detective novelist, and she's really fun. But the actual plot um, and all that sort of thing was a bit a bit a bit weak. But, um, and it was only afterwards I realised that it was it is widely considered one of her weaker books. So that was a shame. Um, right. I read these two R.C. Sheriff novels in preparation for podcast. Yeah. Um, and, and the last podcast I said I'd read Curiosity by Alberto Manguel, and I read about half of it so far, but it was, it's, um, it's, it's very good, but it's very, like, so, uh, quite deep and quite, um, it's not a quick read, it's not a very easy read, there's lots of going on there about Greek myth and philosophers over time, and all sorts of things that I don't know anything about, so I can't, I have to concentrate to work out what's going, what he's talking about. Um, okay, right. One of yeah, so it's really good, but I need to read it slowly without any other noise in the room. And mm-hmm. you know, when, when you're home for Christmas, there's not often time where there's no other noise in the room. So, yeah. So I was dipping in and out of that one. And yeah. I read a really good Stephen Leacock book called Over the Footlights and Other Fancies. But, um, oh, yes, I saw your yeah. review of that. Um, yeah, I've not read any Stephen Leacock for about 13 years, but I really love him. So I thought, yes, now is a good time. And I think it was on Christmas Day I was reading that. I thought, I want to read a book I know I'll like on Christmas Day and it seemed like a good time to um Lovely. to revisit him. And he does indeed appear on my top oh. end of year list. Uh, yeah, we're starting the year with as we mean to go on with excellent segues. <laughs> um seamless. Thank you so much. Uh so yeah this half is it's basically just a way of looking at our favourite books of twenty sixteen I think. But it, but it was is interesting to see how different bloggers and blog readers and people on Instagram or whatever um list their favourite books of the year or don't. Um, mm. When you're looking back at um, over a year of reading, Rachel, or, or mm-hmm. do you look back over a year of reading? And if you do, how do you go about it? What do you do? Well, I keep a list of all the books I read during the course of the year on my computer just for... Very technological. Yeah, uh, just so, you know, I can look back and, and see because I don't review everything I read, so I can't always remember what I've read. The year is quite a long time, as I've discovered by looking over my list. And I looked at the stuff at the beginning. I was like, oh, I don't remember reading that. <laughs> um, so and there's also what I find interesting is that I have a real peak in reading over the summer where I read absolutely loads. Because, um, oh, really? oh, of course, it's summer long holidays. Yeah. yeah, I've got the long summer holidays. And then sort of from January, really, through to Easter time, I don't really read much at all. But I've read a lot of books this year that have been long. Doesn't mean I normally do. Mm. But um, I like to look back over. I like to keep a record and, and to be able to look back and see what I've read because I like to see the patterns and the different moods. I, I think it's really interesting once you've got a list of books, you can see what leads to onto what. So, you know, I might have five or six books in a row that I've read that are Persephone books because I've obviously read one and then thought, oh, I want to be another Persephone or I might have read a lot along the same theme or um, I've seemed to have had a real um, obsession with mystery and detective novels this year if I read loads of them um, so I think for that it's, it's really good but I find it's really difficult sometimes to choose favourites so even though I do normally do a sort of New Year's these are my top five books I think I'd find it quite difficult to rate them because I've read books at different times for different reasons and sometimes I can't say a book's been better than another if you see what I mean. It might have suited my mind at a particular time. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. you like to make a list. I do. Well, like you, I, I keep a list over the year. I, I write it in the back of my diary, so it's, it's pen, and, pen and 
paper. Um, I know. <laughs> and then what I can do <laughs> at the end of each year, in fact, um, is transfer that list into another set of notebooks I have, where it's in alphabetical order. So I've listed the books I've read in chronological order in the back of my diaries, and in alphabetical order <laughs> in another set of notebooks. Which, in your Excel sheet, would be rather, e- or whatever document you use, would be rather easy to do. But you know, I have to mm-hmm. just write everything out again. <laughs> it does mean if I think, oh, when did I read that book by, you know, Silver Tons and Water or something, I can go and, and look amongst the W's. Or the T's, depending on where you put her. <laughs> I put her under W. Um, but yeah, so I always have a, um, an afternoon towards the end of the year where I get start get a big piece of paper and then write down all the books I, w- I would like to see on the book. Well, which I would consider for an end of year list, which normally comes to about 20. And then I try and pick a top 10 from that. And then often it's more than 10. But this year I managed to restrict myself to 10. And I, I do... I just, I really love lists. I love putting things in order. I love seeing what the order other people put things in. And so when I see a blog post where they said, I, I can't put make a list, but here are the 10 I like in alphabetical order or whatever. I think, well, that's great because that's obviously how you want to do it. And you can do it how you like, whoever you are, but just rank everything. Everything needs to be ranked. <laughs> <laughs> how, what's, what's your decision making process? So when you say you rank your books one, three to 10, then is that based on, how much you enjoyed them? Is it based on how interesting you found them? Or, you know, is there a particular strategy you have behind it? Good question. So it's it's mostly instinctive, I guess, and it's definitely not how good I think they are. So okay. often, I'll, you know, if I've read a Dickens, it's, it probably won't get to the first face, even though I will recognise he's probably a better writer than the one I have put in the first place. Yeah. And so, in fact, this year, my favourite one was The Lark by E. Nesbitt. Um, yes. Which I really, really loved, but recognised that um, it's, well, well, I don't think she's a bad writer by any means. She's probably not the best writer I've read this year. And one year I put, you know, Patricia Brent's Finster very high up, and that's a completely ridiculous book, but it, I found it so much, so fun reading it. So I think it's probably mostly just how much I enjoyed reading them. Um, and that enjoyment can be in various different things. So number two is The Lost Europeans by Emmanuel Litvinov, which was a very sort of hard-hitting novel about Germany after the Second World War. So it's certainly not light and fluffy. It's not enjoying that sense, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's basically, if I if I think about it too hard, it all gets a it gets a bit of a mess. So it just has to be which of these. Yeah. Do I like? Did I like reading the most, or did I value the most? I guess. Tea or books gets a look in at number three with cider with Rosie was my third favorite for the year. Mm-hmm. So I was very grateful to Tea or books for giving me the opportunity to read that, and that's I guess halfway between the two. It's both charming and you know hard hitting <laughs> at times. Yeah. Or... Um. I think for me, it's. Yeah, I kind of instinctively do it as well as the books that I've enjoyed the most. But some with some books, I find it quite difficult because there'll be a book that I've enjoyed in part for certain reasons, but overall as a whole, I didn't love it. Oh, okay. See what I mean? Like books where you thought, oh, the, the writing was amazing. I really enjoyed the writing, but actually the ending was rubbish or I thought that it didn't hang together very well. Um, so, for example, The Essex Serpent, which has got quite a big... Mm. following now mm. because it's been chosen as the Waterstones book of the year um you know personally I don't think it should have been but you know mm-hmm. <laughs> each to their own um yeah it's undoubtedly a very well written book but it's in terms of the the sentences are beautifully constructed the words that are used the imagery is lovely but in terms of does it hang together as a story I know plenty of people disagree with me but I didn't feel that it did um so while I would say it's a really, I enjoyed reading it, and I actually bought it for my sister for Christmas because I thought, oh, and I know she'll like this as well. I enjoyed reading it, and I would read it again, but I didn't think that it was a very 
well-constructed story and therefore for me it wouldn't make it onto my list even though I love the writing but I would have a difficulty because I would still recommend it to other people to read it's a really difficult one for me to um to kind of make my mind up about yeah that's interesting I think so, I think what we what all of re- all readers do and what you will have done one thing about it I'm sure is like you're somehow all encapsulated all of that into your esteem for it maybe so if I was if I was making a list of best handbooks of the year then it might be I, find, I would find that rather hard with something like that where I'd think some of this was really really great and some of it wasn't but I think um, I find it easier to know what, I, what I've liked than what I think is the best you see what I mean yeah and I think this because also when you're saying what's the best am I saying what's the best written what's the best plotted what's the best yeah. you know of standard of 2016 or the standard of 1916 because obviously most of the books I read in a year aren't published in 2016. In fact, yeah. almost none of them were published in 2016. Um, see, but yeah, if I'm if I'm just thinking about, and, and when I say that, like this list would definitely change if I wrote it a different day. I think that the top two or three would probably stay the same. But the, I often look back at lists I've written in previous years and thought, really, I thought that one was better than that, or I preferred that one to that one. That surprises me because now I, yeah, not that I've reread them, but it's in my head I've readjusted what I thought of them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is so much about how you feel at a particular time. And I think also it's about reading books at the right time. So, for example, you might read a book at the beginning of the year when you're feeling a bit down and not really enjoy it. Um, and then you could have read the same book again in the summer and you could have felt completely different about it. Yeah. So yeah. I think sometimes where we're at when we read things is has a big effect. But I think, I mean, looking at my list, I haven't written my blog post yet. I will do probably this evening. But... Um, you know, I think I would find it quite easy to pick out. I mean, my big thing this year that I've read, I've I've not actually done this ever. I've read a whole series of five books. Uh, oh, yes, of course, the Casulet Chronicles. Over the course of the yes, and I absolutely adored them. And it's been a real discovery for me. And I know that they're books I'm going to read again and again and again. And I would recommend them to anybody. They're absolutely fantastic. And I really don't know why they, they didn't win awards and all sorts of things, because they are fantastic books. I think it's because they're about domestic life that um, they haven't been more highly rated, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've absolutely loved them but then the thing is with the series do I give them five places in the list or do I just say the series is a one thing on the list I mean how's that going to work what would you do in that circumstance I think in that circumstance because I have a a rule well I have two rules for when I'm making my list is that I can't include rereads and I can't include the same author more than once so what I would probably do is pick my favourite one of those five and put it on my list but I don't think I could that's Uh. the thing because they're kind of because what's so great about them is that they're written as a continuum. Mm, so it's just one huge book. Yeah, pretty much. So it's difficult to say well this book is better than that because they're all just they've all contained the same things. Mm, tricky. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like Harry Potter where there's a different adventure in each book. It doesn't kind of work like that. I mean, obviously the plot develops over time and what have you, but there's element that it's the same elements in every book. If you see what I mean. I do remember that there used to be that list going around Facebook all the time saying the BBC think only you look read only average eight of these hundred books, or whatever. And it always used to round me up because they had as separate categories um I think yeah, I think they're the Chronicles of Narnia as one book and then Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe as another book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and complete works of Shakespeare as one and Hamlet as another. No. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I mean, of course, the, the the main rule with any of these things is you can do what you like. So, so, yeah, but it's uh, great, you know. Yeah, I think I would probably put them as one book because I do think that with a series like that, you can't just read one. It's like if I said, oh, book three is the best, I'm going to put that as number one, but then nobody could just read book three. You'd have to have read the previous ones to understand what was happening. So you can't really treat them as standalone. They're definitely not standalone novels. This is what's always annoyed me with Map and Lutier, which I've probably moaned about on here before and definitely have in my blog, how that the book Map and Lutier is always the one that's in print. I was thinking, no, it's book four of a series. You can't start with this one. You have to read the other three first. <laughs> <laughs> I should just be standing next to that shelf in bookshops. <laughs> no, 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 not yet. Come back to me in three books time. <laughs> I've been banned from a lot of bookshops. <laughs> Um, well, in fact, you, you, you might have seen that I'm doing Project 24 next, or this year, so um, well, yes. don't, don't need to go to that many bookshops, it turns out. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was thinking of joining you for that, but then um, I, well, I was like, no, I can totally do this. And then I've been on support so many books in the last couple of days. I mean, I probably could now have done that. I mean, to be fair, I've had to buy books from the course. Um but I did pick up a very good bargain in a charity shop at the weekend, and I thought, oh, I have to tell Simon about this. Ooh, what do you um, £2.50. Well, I got E.M. Delafield, mm-hmm. Methylena of the Herbs, first Ooh. edition. Wow. £2.50. That's very good. Wow. That's what I thought. You're lucky that I've already got it, copy, just... which I pay considerably more than £2.50 for, otherwise I would be breaking into your house. <laughs> is it good? I've not actually read it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm sure it is. Um, have I? Well, no, no, I haven't. Um, it, um, have you read um, A Pin to See the Peep Show by F. Tennyson and Jesse? Because those two books are based on the same real life murder trial. No, are they really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I could read them in tandem. You could. Perfect. Perfect, indeed. In fact, well, I've got both of them as well and haven't read them. This could be a future episode. This is perfect, Simon. There we are. We were just talking before we started recording about how we had no ideas, and there we go. Okay, I mean, both mine are in Somerset, so it can't be the next episode, but in some point in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've still got to read 500 pages of Dombey and Son, so probably uh, <laughs> next episode. Some future, if anybody else has either of those two books. Yeah. So in terms of you making your list, which you do for your blog, and, you know, is excellent and very inspiring for other people. Oh, um, I think it's, I think for me, when I read your lists, it's, it's great for recommendations. And I also think it's, it's good to, to, because I know you as a reader, I know how you would classify things. So that I know if you've said something's number one, then you've absolutely, must have absolutely loved it. And again, I know that you don't always judge things on the quality of the writing. It'll be for you about the enjoyment factor. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that, the quality of the writing is not important when it comes to things like this. Um, I, I think it is important um, in as much as it isn't. It is something that helps me enjoy a book. Um, it, it's just not the only thing I think that helps me enjoy a book. Like I say, like the last Europeans, the reason that's there is because the quality of the writing is so good, um, rather than because I found it fun. So I yeah. think I think that whoever's doing these lists, if they are, and I agree with you, they're really good for recommendations. As I always enjoy, um, particularly well, yes, yours and Claire's at the Captive Reader are the two that I sort of 
I note down recommendations, particularly after. And then I, well, I say there are two particular, all of them I read, that I end up coming away with something I want to read after looking at them. But as, what I need them to do, what I need people to do when they make the list, <laughs> need them to do, they can do what they like. But what helps me is if, <laughs> is if they, um, explain, yeah, why that is on, on the list or what criteria they have for the list. Yeah. Because I think if it's just a list of books, as you say, like, you because you know what what I um sort of what I'm after you know that some of them we've they're just for enjoyment some some of them there for writing etc but if someone's just made a list I think I don't know if if they're here there because you think they're all really historically accurate or something which is you know something that yeah. bothered me at all when I was looking for for which book to read next um so I think I think for the most part I, I make a list for my own enjoyment and it's just n- nice if other people find it useful whereas with other people I'm just like I'm glad you're enjoying making this list, but, but I also want it to be useful to me for stocking up my recommendations. In fact, that reminds me on Claire's list, she mentioned um, at, num- at number two, I think, um, To the Bright Edge of the World by Owen Ivey, which has been on my bedside table for ages, but I've not started, and that has definitely encouraged me to start it sooner than I would otherwise have done. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think when you know somebody else's taste and you can see that they've ranked something so highly, it does make you want to get to it more quickly, I think. Do you pay much attention to the like, newspapers ranking best books published this year? No, because, I mean, it's probably cynical, but I can't help but think that publishers have paid for that. Oh, really? Oh, that hadn't crossed my mind. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the same with the Water Saints Book of the Year and all these sorts of things. I mean, the publishers, there's a backhand going on somewhere, isn't there? As somebody who works for a publishing house for at least another fortnight, I'm saying nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think your silence speaks volumes, Simon. <laughs> well, no, I'd be the last person in the world that would be told anything of that nature. <laughs> Particularly since I work for the dictionaries department. And the OED is always dictionary of the year. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but I do think there is an element of that behind it. And also, I think a lot of the time, newspaper critics are... Are looking at books from a different perspective to me. Um, it's you know take take a look at prize list to know that because half the time the books that win the prizes nobody actually reads. They're unreadable in terms of are they entertaining stories? Um, probably not. Are they books that you're going to carry around with you for the rest of your life because they spoke to you in some deep way? Probably not. Are they clever? Probably. Um, and they're always clever, aren't they? They're always artistic mm. in some way and use one writing. But do they capture something of the of the soul that makes you want to return to them again and again. I've never had that experience with a with a prize winning book apart from the one exception. Um, actually, two exceptions I would say. Margaret Atwood's books. I don't mind her winning prizes because she she is amazing. <laughs> um, and also, Possession, which won the Booker Prize, and I do genuinely love that book. Um, but yeah. I think in the last ten years or so. I've struggled to see any books on prize-winning lists that have really captured my attention, or I've read them and then thought, don't really think much of that. Yeah, uh, similarly for me, or I think it's even more just the fact that in a given year, particularly now that I've stepped down from um, shiny new books, that I'm I'm unlikely to read more than two or three books published in that year. and there'll be books that either have been very strongly recommended to me, or my book group is doing, or are books like with the Own Ivy that I've already really liked one of their previous books. I'm not, so I'm not really on the lookout for ten mm-hmm. new 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 books published over the past twelve months because I just don't really want to concentrate that percentage of my reading in one year. Like I wouldn't read, you know, ten books published in 
1917, let alone 10 books published in 2017 in one year, because it just seems too much like it's too focused on one one thing. That's what always baffles me about people who only read the latest books. I'm thinking, there's there's like centuries of literature, and you're putting all of your reading time into one year of all that time. doesn't make sense to me. No, same here. Um, So I like to read quite widely. I mean, I always do try and dip into modern books, and if I see something that's been published by someone I like, I'll, I'll make an effort to read it. Um, and if something's being talked about and it seems like my cup of tea, then I will. I mean, I, the thing is, I'm quite lucky in that I live in London and I walk past bookshops all the time. So, and there is a real renaissance going on at the moment with bookshops. I find that they're making real efforts to do lovely displays and to pick out interesting books and have like booksellers' choices and things like that. So you can go in and see what's been published lately. And that's mm. the Essex Serpent was seeing it in the shop and it has a beautiful dust jacket and mm, it was attracted yes. by that when I picked it up. So it's that kind of tactile, looking at things, picking things up and finding things. And occasionally I will buy a couple of new books and, and read them, but I'm terrible for buying things and then just like putting them on the bookshelf and then, you know, never getting around to it. Um, oh, well, but I do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're all like that. But yeah. I do try and keep a, a toe in um, as much as possible. Because I think also, you know, for me, being a teacher, it is important that I do know what's current in the literary world to be able to recommend things to students. And, and also, a lot of the time, these best books of 2017 or whatever, they're just, I just think, no, I know I don't like that writer. No, that story sounds rubbish. And they're always so depressing as well. That's it's true. Like, no. Whenever it's like a searing look at certain things, like, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't like, want that. No, <laughs> like, you know, such such as works in a bank and has gone bankrupt or you know this person's child has died or something like seriously the world's depressing enough as it is i'll go back to uh, 1894 thanks <laughs> um get dickens miserable <laughs> moments instead but at least you know his miserable he, moments are often quite funny as well <laughs> exactly i did Makes have one 2016 book um on my end of year list which is one i've mentioned on here a couple of times um Terms and Conditions by Senator Maxine Graham, that one about boarding schools. Yes, which is currently out of print, actually, Simon. Yes, I'm so sorry. I, I feel to blame. I, th- I think it's been a huge success for Slightly Fox. It's appeared on quite a few um, lists that I have seen, both on the blog and in, in newspapers and things. It's been a sort of underground success. Well, yeah, well, I wanted to order it, but it's it's um, it's um not it's not in print. Oh, they'll bring it back. They'll bring, they're, they're reprinting as we speak. I don't want to say okay. that this podcast has single-handedly been responsible for the selling out of it. <laughs> but I don't think it would be part of the truth, Simon, if you did. Particularly since the first time I forgot to mention its title or author. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. But um, I, have, I think I saw on their Twitter account that they're, they're heck busily um, reprinting it at the moment. So I'm sure it'll soon be available for everyone to have in their heart or hands. Um, and I'm really pleased for them. It's... Because you know how much I love Sally Fox, and it's really nice that they're having a big success with such a yeah. quirky, unusual book. Um, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to getting my copy when it's reprinted. Yeah. So, um, do you want to reveal on on here what your top book of the year has been? Well, well I, did, said yeah, it, I did. I did. The Lark, yes. And, um, and what about your um, your tenth? I'm interested to know what your tenth book is. Ah, um, so tenth was Daisy's Aunt by E. F. Benson. That just slipped in there. Um, you so love your E.F. Benson. I do. I've actually not read much by him that wasn't Mafanutia yet. So this is only the second one, I think, that I've read that wasn't Mafanutia. Um, and I read it in the summer, um, mostly while sitting in, in a National Trust property. I can't remember which one, but I was sat in the garden of National Trust property. Um, and it was it, completely silly, this very bizarre convoluted plot about 
why Daisy's aunt starts uh, romance with Daisy's, I don't think fiance, maybe fiance, or certainly the man she she wants to marry, um, for all sorts of complicated reasons that don't. That it's one of those novels where the whole setup would be completely destroyed if anyone had sat down and had a sensible conversation at any point. But um, right. c- completely fun, loved every moment. It was very silly um, and just you know frivolous and enjoyable. That's what came in at number ten and number one. Really, in between ten and one, there were a few more hard hitting books. But looking, <laughs> looking at my list, not really that many to be honest. <laughs> So good fun and frivolous have been your um, your main categories for well, it seems success to be, this year. Yes, looking looking over my list, um, yeah, because the Compton McKenzie and Stephen Leacock, uh, um, and indeed one of the RC Sheriffs made it as well. Um, I'll reveal which one later because it's going to give away which is my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I think maybe with 2016 being such a miserable and distressing year in many ways perhaps i yes. t- took recourse to f- light frivolous books or at least at the end of the year those are the ones that stood out as the ones i'd enjoyed most to get through 2016 yes well i don't know i'm, I'm gonna have to think about my te- my 10 because you know five is going to take up five books that's going to take up one <laughs> slot so i've got not much to pick from do you have any but more think... spoilers for the list yeah well i think actually I would say Far Cry from Kensington would make it onto the list, which oh, I would never have excellent. read if it wasn't for the podcast. You saying so? Um, yeah, I absolutely love that, and made me realise that I need to read more Muriel Sparks. So maybe another one of hers would appear on the list next year. Um, one of the uh, books that we are going to talk about today would also make it onto the list. Mm-hmm. Um, won't reveal it. Um, so and probably. <laughs> Also, you know, I might even say that Lolly Willows might make it onto the list. Just because it was, yeah, another podcast book I wouldn't have read unless you'd have said. But it was so unlike anything I would normally read. And actually, it was so well written. Mm. And even though I was not a huge fan of the the sudden change to uh, weird supernatural stuff at the end, um, it is... Still a fantastic, a really interesting book, and I think for that reason I would put it on the list because it it is something that I would recommend to other people. And I think if I'd recommend it to other people, then it must be a good book, right? That's a good criterion for yeah for putting something on the list. Mm. Um, in fact, Silver Townsend one I made number four on my list with the Museum of Cheats, the short story collection I read yeah. early in the year, um, which I really think you'd like i'm sure her other short stories are similar because it it is that beautiful writing without the fantastic and without being historical and without all that sort of thing which she does in her novels it's just um normal life in england in the time she's writing it so yeah maybe oh, that's okay. your 2017 list i will keep an eye out for it mm-hmm. so if i'm going to do i'm gonna be quite careful aren't i oh that's true what? oh yes in, in the case we don't know project 24 is buying only 24 books across the year which is the challenge i've set myself but you know what that's actually doable because that's two books a month and it's not like you're saying you can't buy anything it just means that you have to really think about what it is you are buying and prioritize so i could handle that i think i'm gonna do it Hurrah, you had it here first guys if, if i if i say if i can say it doesn't include course books because i will have to buy books for my course that i, I wouldn't fair enough yeah change. I think that's fair enough. But other than that, no, I think I could do that because the book's situation in my flat is starting to get out of control. <laughs> so, you know, I just don't have anywhere else to put them. You know, when you're renting somewhere furnished, I can't really, I don't have anywhere else to put a bookcase. So I don't have another bookcase. So 
stuff is starting to get stacked up in the most unseemly manner, which I don't like. <laughs> yes, I the other day, in fact, yesterday, I did move around very a few, uh, sorry, a couple of tables in my room just so um, there was one more section of a table against a wall that I could put books on. <laughs> so it's getting a bit desperate here as well. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'm just doing it so I can read more of the books that I've got that I've not read, essentially. But as you yeah. say, like, it's not none. Um, so t- 24 is still probably more than most people by any year, but it sort of seems like so little to us. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'll buy 10 books in one go, so, you know. Yeah, uh... I, I bought 27 when I was in Hay on Wise. Oh, dear. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. We can keep each other accountable throughout the year. <laughs> yes, I think that sounds like an excellent idea. Right, so before we so go to our... Do, um, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I was just, uh, just going to ask, would you ever say what your worst book of the year was? Oh, so I actually often do like a, an extra thing of like looking at how many I've read by men and women and how many are fiction, non-fiction, etc. And I often put the most disappointing one in there. So I'm just going ah. to look at my... Which is basically the same thing, I guess. Or, well, I suppose it's, I have more expectations for it to be disappointing. Um, just flicking through my list... Well, in terms of most disappointing, I was really disappointed by the um, Edith Wharton book I read because I really wanted to re- love it. Oh, um, which one? Which one was it? The, the Age of Innocence, yes. No, Simon. I know, I'm so sorry. I'm shocked by and that. It certainly wasn't the worst book I read this year because I still think it's probably a very good book. I just I didn't like it. <gasps> Is the podcast over? <laughs> I can't speak. I mean, <laughs> I just love it, but um, you know, I can see how you might not like it. It's quite dark, I suppose, and also frustrating. I just found um, it a bit, bit dull as well. Isn't that awful? No, no, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. I wonder what I'm just trying to think. What I would say was my most disappointing. Well, I suppose the worst, most disappointing. I think actually for me, the most disappointing book of the year. I'm just looking at my list. Was um. A Picture of Dorian Gray by Scobard. I'd never read it oh, before. Oh, really? So I love it, but I've not read it since I was 19, I think. So who knows no, what I well, think of it now? I read it to um, to help somebody who was writing an essay about it. And I'd never read it before. And I thought, oh, well, you know, and I love Oscar Wilde's plays. And I expected it to be really good. And I'd, I've, you know, I've seen the film and what have you. So I already knew what the story was about. Um, but I just read it and thought, what? a load of rubbish it just reads like a bunch of one-liners and it's there were whole pages where i just like went to sleep so i was so bored and i just thought the overall story was over the top and yeah really disappointing because i you know people talk about it as being like this amazing book and you read it and you're like you know and i thought it was going to be this really haunting story that was going to stay with me um but actually you know oscar wilde was a great playwright at least in my opinion I thought we discussed Picture of Dorian Gray in an early episode of this, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did. And I and think had... I was just like, it was good. Oh, was that after you'd read it? No, 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 yes, I didn't, no, we did discuss it. And I did. I think I said I didn't like it in the podcast. Yeah, but um, I thought you said you hadn't read it before just now. Yeah, no, I hadn't. I read it this year, didn't I? So we did this. Oh, was um, it for that? Okay. Yes. No, we did I was it. Say, I... Did we discuss it before you'd read it? And you said... <laughs> no. no, we didn't, no. Because it was, must have been in January or February, because it's right at the beginning of my list. And, oh, yeah. I mean, I just found it really disappointing. 
you know, when everyone talks about how, and I think um, Jenny at Reading the End is like one of her favourite books, and she always used to talk about it, and I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think maybe it's one of those ones that I would, yeah, perhaps like a lot less um, when I'm not an impressionable undergraduate. <laughs> but I think in terms of worst book, I think because I've got better at giving up on books, I just haven't finished the books I thought were the worst ones, and now I can't remember what they were if I gave up on them. Yeah, so, well, I think yeah. it's good that actually we feel the freedom to do that now, because otherwise you would waste an awful lot of time reading books that are rubbish. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, talking about two books that aren't rubbish, Simon. Oh, nice. Before we get into segue, can we just assume for the first half that I'm saying yes to this and you're saying no? <laughs> Is that right? Um, oh, no, actually, I like okay. a list. I'll say yes. I will. Okay. I, I, do, I, I do one, so I will do one. Yeah. Lovely. So let's guess the two, two books that are not rubbish. Let's see if, well, let's get to eventually whether or not we've picked the same one for our favourite. <laughs> but yes, two R.C. Sheriff novels. Um, you, was it you who suggested these? I can't remember. Yes, well, you suggested doing R.C. Sheriff and then you said you wanted to read them and I said I'd already read Fortnite in September and Green Gates and then you had, an, you, was, you suggested Hopkins Manuscript but I haven't got it so we decided to do Green Gates and Fortnite. That's right, yes. Which I think works better because they're more similar thematically, I would say. Cool. Do you want to um, introduce one of them? Since I've just read both of them, I'm happy to do either, so you take your pick. Yeah, can I do Green Gates because it's been a while since I did Fortnite in September? Sure, yes. So I'll do that first. Um, okay, so Green Gates is set in the 1920s and it's about um, a man called Tom, Tom Baldwin, who is in his very late 50s and the novel opens on the day when he retires from his job in the city. He's got an office job, hasn't been particularly, you know, an amazing career or anything. He's just had a job and he has going, you see him in this train journey home having this whole, you know, internal battle about what what it would be like to retire and go back to his wife and um, his suburban house and his garden. And he has all these ideas as he's travelling home about how, you know, a retirement for him is going to be this wonderful experience. It's going to be this whole new epoch in his life. He's going to become a historian. That's what he's always been passionate no, yes. about. <laughs> um, he's going to do his garden. It's going to be this wonderful, fulfilling existence. He's not going to be like all these other people who fall apart um, during retirement. It's quite funny on the train. He, he reads this news article oh, about who's yes. committed suicide due to his unemployment and his retirement. And it seems like... Um, this sort of dreadful omen coming out at him and he's like no I'm not going to be like that I'm going to have this whole second career my life is going to be wonderful um, and then the next part of the novel you have this kind of touching but also quite humorous um, display of how this this dream of his proves to be you know completely unrealistic and you see how everybody thinks that they're going to be different but actually the reality is you know you do fall into these habits and all these ideas you have i mean if you if you spent the previous 60 years of your life not doing something you're not going to suddenly pick it up at 60 and and realize we're amazing at it um and so what the story is mainly about is is him and his wife they come across this house and in the country and it's about them deciding whether they're going to buy it or not and um the different life that, that they think about having and it's really really interesting certainly from the perspective of someone who's got a long time until they retire um Mm. to to think about that kind of different stages of life and and how you can find enjoyment in different areas and uh, in different ways and find new areas of yourself that you have never really untapped even in later life and i just found it a really 
um, inspiring and look at a time of life that's not often written about, I think. Absolutely. Um, Lovely. Um, so The Fortnight in September was written um, a few years earlier than Green Gates. It was in 1931, Green Gates in 1936. Um, it's a book I've intended to read for years in September, but every September I've missed <laughs> it. And so it's fine, I'll just give up and read it, but it's not September. Um, in terms of plot, it's a lot simpler than Green Gates, even though Green Gates isn't a particularly complex plot. It's basically a family going on holiday to the seaside, and that's more or less everything that happens. Um, the, the first... 100 pages they were just deciding where not even deciding where to go they've already planned when to go it's just them getting ready to go and getting on the train um and it's mr and mrs stevens and their grown-up children dick and mary they, they both still live at home they're only just grown up and young ernie um and they always go to bogner every year to the same guest house they've been doing it ever since their honeymoon mr and mrs stevens honeymoon um and the novel just looks at the thoughts of all of them, it goes, the perspective is in all of their different minds at different times as they go on this fortnight holiday, um, to Bogness and how they're changing in their lives or how, and they're either embracing that change or not. So Mary's excited about seeing young men for the first time. Dick's a bit unhappy at his job. Um, Mr. Stevens misses being the president of his football club or sorry, secretary, whatever it was. Um, Mr. Stevens is a bit anxious about the whole thing. Um, Ernie's quite content. He's just, you know, playing around. But, um, <laughs> it's, it's a really simple, beautiful story about, um, yeah, ordinary, an ordinary, very ordinary family doing a very ordinary thing, um, without it, any sort of big twists or big, you know, gasp moments. And it took me a while the first time I read a book, although well, this book, before I read, I read this one first, um, I got used to a style more for the second one. I kept waiting for something drastic to happen and, <laughs> um, and there are a couple of moments where it's like they, they fear Mrs. Stevens is drowned but she's just looking through the window of a shop and that's sort of thing. <laughs> um, so yes that's basically the fortnight in September um, so you you obviously have read both of them when did you read the fortnight in September I read it years ago it was one of the first Persephone's I got actually and I just found it utterly charming like mm. fell in love with it um, and I just thought it was the most yeah, a lovely book because ostensibly it's not really about anything. Nothing happens. It's just about this ordinary family who go for a, a week on holiday to somewhere completely boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it managed to say so much about life within those pages, about the reality of everyday life, about the little disappointments, the little pleasures, and about how wonderful ordinary life is. And I think so much of what we do on an everyday basis we kind of don't notice it or we don't think about it and when you actually read about it and think oh this is like me this is what I do on my holiday this is how I think about things um and because of that I think it's a really lovely life-affirming book because it is about the magic in the everyday and I don't think a lot of writers really you know like you said there is no you're always waiting for like some big shock some big excitement to happen and actually in everyday life it's not really like that is it Exactly. Um, there's, um, our Peter who is on Instagram as bag full of books. Um, I can't remember which of these books it was when I put it on Instagram that she commented on, but she said that, um, I heard a little phrase I thought is really, um, works really well for them. She said she really loved his slow prose and it is that sort of, mm. I, I love the way he writes in a way that is compelling whilst not really saying anything. And yeah. you know, dozens of faders will pass without anything that could be called an event, but he, the way he writes, he's so engaging and, 
And it's not outlandish characters, it's not outlandish events, but it's just some... Re- I don't know how he does it, you just keep wanting to read on. It's like a page-turner. It's like... It's a, I found it as compulsive reading as a thriller, despite the fact that in both these books, all they were doing was just living ordinary lives. Yeah, well, I think what it is, is, is that you get so invested in the characters and you care so much about them that you are desperate to find out what happens. So I just really felt that I was part of, of the, the family's lives in both of the books and I got to know them and love them as people and I was concerned about the future for them and what was going to happen and certainly in the fortnight in September I was like oh, I really want them to enjoy this holiday and I was yeah. wo- I was worried that they weren't or that something bad was going to happen and you know there is also I did feel in the fortnight in September actually there was a quite kind of undercurrent of of um not peril but there is an element of something there because there is a threat underneath the surface that the that you know Dick and Mary are working for the first time and I think isn't Dick thinking about leaving home or something like that and mm. um, I don't think um, what's the name of the the father I don't think he massively enjoys his job he's always just Mr Stevens <laughs> yeah Mr Stevens and yeah. there is a kind of sense that this holiday is a sorely needed time for them to to come back to themselves to kind of recover themselves and I suppose I was a bit worried that they wouldn't and I wanted it to be this wonderful restorative experience for them and I was concerned that it wouldn't be and you know it is in the end. Yes you're right though in both books they are going through periods of change very obviously in the retirement one sort of a a predictable change that he's looking forward to in some ways and there's positive things and it's more like the beginning of something than the end of something yeah um, whereas the other point in september particularly i think for mrs stevens it is the sort of in, the creeping end of something and the thinking we don't know if this is the last time we'll go as a family because next year the, the older children might want to do something else and it did remind me a lot of the last holiday we had as a family before my brother and I went to university, and we have since had family holidays, because so it wasn't the last one, <laughs> but there was that feeling um, of this is the end of childhood, this is the last time we'll do it, this is a family precisely like this. But, and particularly, I think, because I was so terrified of going to university. <laughs> um, I mean, I ended up staying for nine years, so obviously didn't know how much once <laughs> I got there. But I was so terrified beforehand that it was just it was like, I don't, I'm not ready for the end of this, but it has to end. And there was that feeling with the boarding house they were staying in being a little worse for wear than it had been the previous year. Yeah. Um, and all those sorts of things of memories or like traditions slipping away from them and not quite being able to grasp onto them. Yeah. Yet at the same time trying to enjoy what was happening at that time. And it's not sorry for Ernie as well, because I think what's going to happen to him in a few years when he's like, because he's quite a lot younger than his brother and sister. Um, and yeah, he's going to, presumably still go on holiday with his parents long after his elder brother and sister have left home. But I guess they they don't think too much. Well, as the novel ends, you don't think too much about the future years. No, but it is that wonderful encapsulation of of childhood and the precariousness of time, I suppose, really, because you have all these wonderful memories, but they all pass, don't they? And time passes much quicker than you realise as you get older. Um, And you do have that sense of parental sadness about, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Stevens thinking, you know, oh, the, the kids are getting older and time is slipping away from them and they're not their, their babies anymore. They're having to let them out into the real world. And this, this holiday is kind of an artificial time where they're all together still. They're still being able to be controlled and, and looked after in that sense. 
and it is i think that that is that element of, of bittersweetness about life which which comes through really nicely like we can really enjoy these times together but we're always conscious that this time is finite so it was really interesting and despite the fact that there's quite a lot of it is because there is it's not a miserable book by any means there's lots of no, no, no. Ha- happy moments in it um and 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 the writing's not it's, it's really good writing it's not particularly complex so a lot of it would be at home in a children's book but it but it never feels like a children's book um no. i i found that impressive because i didn't it, it didn't even feel like a simple book really even though it also, at the same time, was quite plain. And, um, I don't try to think what, what I'm trying to say, but yeah, I was impressed how it managed to feel as literary as literary fiction, whilst having none of the ingredients of it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think because it's emotionally complex, it's it comes across as being as being more sophisticated than perhaps the prose actually warrants. Mm-hmm. But it is. But it's also he's got a wonderful way of being able to perfectly describe moments and feelings and smells and he really has a lovely turn of phrase. It might not be um super flowery, but he does manage to just pick the right words. Mm. Anyway, I didn't like it so much as when, when Dick is on the on the beach and is thinking about his job and has a sudden revelation about how everything's gonna be fine. And I thought that's a bit too sudden for me, a bit too like bit he thought about it for a bit long and everything turned out the future would all be lovely and that was what the only scene that sort of cheapened it a bit for me because the rest i think is much more subtle than that yeah um, and and he's not he doesn't have you know mrs stevens see a vase of flowers and a mantelpiece and think oh, actually no, everything's gonna be fine or something as a, as a lesser novelist might have been <laughs> <laughs> um i did feel sorry for that old lady living next door to them at home who they were who seemed to live her life just for the for you know out of vicariously through them and yet they they just didn't want to spend any time with her and found her boring or something, which is again very true to life. I'm sure that there are that you know there are, there were and are older people who people just aren't interested in seeing. Sadly, yeah, um, seeing them as sort of like a little bit of a burden without realizing the difference that kindness would make to them. Yes, a lesson for us all. Yeah, it is indeed, and I, I was I was expecting something, some sort of redemptive narrative for her, but I guess it is more realistic that things just carried on. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Greengates. Um, as you say, well, there were a few things in this that marked out as being very much a novel of the 1930s. The first being that he retires at 58. Yes, was lucky <laughs> him. Yeah, although I did notice that a year later in the book he was 61, so I think, I think Artie Sheriff may have <laughs> done some cartoon <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Forgotten what age he'd supposed to be at the beginning. Um, but also, yes, that they lived in this three-bed detached house in London on a, on a middle management wage. But... Yeah, in in a part of London that's now very expensive, I might add. Yes, indeed. But yes, I I found in, in both books actually, and in this one, that I very much cared about the characters. But I found them all none of them really had a sense of humour. I don't know if you found that the same as well. They they cared all cared very much about what other people thought of them and never seemed to laugh at themselves. Okay. No, I don't think I really noticed that part. I found them really endearing. The tea, like Tom and Edie, I just found as being lovely, and I loved how um, Tom's kind of beliefs about himself slowly fall apart. And I just thought it was really realistic about how cross he gets with himself and how cross he gets with his wife, and you know how his frustration at not being able to do what he thought he would be able to do, and that. that I just loved when they go for this walk and 
Edith is like, right, we're going on this walk and this walk is going to sort things out. You know, I need this to sort things out. And you feel this desperation and this real moment where it needs to work. And, you know, when they come over, so they go on this country walk for people who don't know. Can I say this without ruining? It does happen quite early on in the plot, doesn't it? I, th- well, I think the title gives it away, really. <laughs> yeah. So um, they go for this walk in the countryside. It's a favourite old walk. So Tom's been really down in the dumps because he's realised that, you know, actually being a historian, there's a lot more to it than he anticipated. Um, and nobody wants to take on the book he sent to the publishers. And it's all been a bit disappointing, really. And um, they're, they're finding that life together is, is quite different now that they don't have separate lives and living in each other's pockets means they don't really have anything to talk about so basically their relationship's falling apart and they don't have any children um to never, hold... never mentioned is it no. so i found it interesting yeah, yeah it wasn't made a big deal out of at all mm. it wasn't mentioned like oh if only we'd have children or i wish we'd had children or or and even it's... why they decided not to have children yeah this is just the whole concept wasn't, wasn't mentioned just absence um and so they go on this walk in the countryside and um they've got this favorite view that they've always loved and they haven't been since before the war and they are really excited and things are starting to get better and they've had a proper talk and they feel like they're coming back together again and then they get to the breast of this hill and down below is supposed to be this amazing valley and then they're shocked and horrified because the, there's a huge building program going on down in the valley of this new one of these new estates now not an estate as we would think of it nowadays but something that looks actually lovely like lots of little detached houses spread out across into this lovely countryside view um, and they're really indignant about it and they walk down and um i can't believe this has ruined the countryside and then they get invited in by this very uh, slick salesman to have a look at the show home. And this moment when they walk in and have this realisation that actually our lives could be different if we want them to be, um, I just found really amazing. And mm-hmm. I loved it. And the, going from them being like, this is an outrage, this has ruined everything. You know, Edith's heart sinks because she thinks, oh, I was so close to getting him to be happy and now this has ruined it all. And, um, and I just love the unexpectedness of it. And also the fact that I didn't think that they were going to go through with it. Um, oh, okay. Um, I thought, oh no, they'll they'll go back to being comfortable. Um, and then it's kind of that idea of of taking risks and being daring. And I just loved that part of it. And I just thought they're so such ordinary people, and for them, buying a house in a different place and deciding to leave everything behind is a huge step. Um, for a lot of other people, it would just be like, yeah, sure, I'm going to buy a new house. But for them, it's like leaving everything they've ever known behind. And doing that at 60 is, you know, quite a big change, really, When especially when you live somewhere all your life and your friends are all there and everything. Um, Not that they seem to have any friends. No, but yeah, so, yeah, that's no. interesting. They've got their habits, you know. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. That was, that was I think, my favourite part as well when they went on that walk. Not least because I'm always a fan of leaving London and going to the countryside. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, I could feel the weight of oppression um, <laughs> lifting, which, which it was in the novel for various reasons, which aren't to do with my love of the countryside or over London. But um, but yes, I, 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 did, I did love that bit. Um, and I hadn't seen, uh, the, I hadn't seen yet, looking ahead, like that his outrage would turn it into that being the place you buy. But throughout the book, I was thinking, it's called Green Gates, and we've not got anywhere called Green Gates yet. Because <laughs> th- the house they live in is called Grasmere, and I thought, surely <laughs> Green Gates is coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yes, I think I probably would have called it something else if I were as you sheriff um, to make it more of a surprise, but perhaps he wasn't going for surprise. Right. Um, and yeah, I as we as when we talked about bricks and mortar by Helen Ashton uh, a couple of episodes ago, I love books about houses. Um, there wasn't that much about the design of the house, um, but enough to to please me. <laughs> um, okay. And just that sense of um, getting out of that the house they'd lived in for their entire married life um, and moving somewhere um, in a beautiful place with you know, a beautiful village, um, getting to sign their own house. It was sort of like a fairy tale, but at the same time it came with its own, you know, it was still very realistic, but like yeah. realising that the furniture wasn't worth as much as they thought it was and um, <laughs> the big shock of having to get a mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. What a nightmare. Get, I know. <laughs> this mini disgrace <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, I think yeah when I said that they couldn't laugh at themselves I think they were very realistic I think a lot of people who, who aren't able to laugh at themselves but I think they'd be so much happier if they did because perhaps um, actually no I think both Mr. Stevens and and um, whatever this guy's called what's his name Tom Tom thank you um, I've care far too much about yeah how they appear to other people whether or not they have the respect of other people and particularly tom is a, is a massive snob <laughs> and that that was a bit of a turn off for me um yeah i didn't see him as as being a, a snob at all so i'm really interested in you saying that really well hmm. when he when he sets up okay towards the end of the novel he sets up a club but he doesn't he doesn't want everyone who wants the right sort of person he's not sure that the friend he's made is the right sort of man he doesn't like that he says the wife instead of my wife all that sort of thing no i mean no that was a bit but then at the same time i did think what he's trying to do is not keep people out but he's trying to keep people in the club who will do things in the way that he wants like the, for example that guy who wants to set up the club he knows he's the kind of person he will take over that's a, that is a charitable view of it. I guess I guess maybe it's open to interpretation. I took the less charitable view of him. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I did enjoy that even on this new housing estate in this brave new world, they still have room for a servant. <laughs> so it's yes. not everything changed, which did surprise me for the middle thirties. Actually, I'd have thought by then it, it wouldn't have been that unusual to go servantless. But perhaps that was only with the Second World War that it really took off. Yeah. Anyway. I did feel sorry for the for is it Ada the servant? Yes. The other house who's just sort of wanders off into the night but um, she seems quite happy in the end yeah i found that quite interesting actually because i thought that must have been an absolutely awful job to just live alone as the one domestic servant in the house you had nobody else to talk to and particularly since throughout the day it's mostly um Edie is at home the servant also at home but but the class rules mean they can't just sit together and have a cup of tea and chat yeah Except for that one time they do towards the end. But yeah, if like you think how much happier that situation would have been for both of them if they had just, you know, worried less about that. And I also think, you know, what on earth was Edie doing all day? I mean, if I didn't have my if I wasn't working and I didn't have my own cooking or shopping or cleaning to do, like what what would you do? Like obviously I could fill my time with many things. Yeah. But, you know, not on a permanent basis. Yeah, because she didn't. She had those things on Wednesdays and Fridays that she did. Uh, Wednesday, Friday afternoon, she go to some club or other, or whatever it was. But the rest of the time, yeah, she wasn't. 
she wasn't doing any cooking or cleaning. She didn't seem to read. She didn't seem to paint. She didn't seem to have any hobbies. No. She didn't have any, have any friends. So, yeah. So, she seriously. had her afternoon naps. So. Yeah. I was like, and why do you need a nap? You're not doing anything. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I guess we can't blame Edie. She was a product of her time. But yes. <laughs> perhaps on this new housing estate, she'll have more friends. Yes. Um, but again, this novel, like The Fortnight in September, I loved how it was so simple, it's completely linear. So, like modern novels, often seem to think you have to jump around in in time or from different people's perspectives in different chapters yeah. to keep things interesting. Whereas this one, we did see different people's perspectives, but it was all very naturally done. It it wasn't like suddenly disjointed into someone else's mind. Then you know, it would just go from the narrator into what the person was thinking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no tricks with the narrative. No. It's a no sort of fancy messing around. I think it was just like get from A to Z, and quite even pace throughout, and and just somehow just the talent of his writing, I guess, keeps the reader completely hooked. Yeah, and you know you don't need anything major to happen, and you don't need to hear things. You don't want to hear Edie's perspective or such and such as a perspective. We just like we just see the whole story unfold before us. And it's wonderful. And I loved, loved, loved all the period details about the housing estate and the, the different designs and what was considered yeah. modern at the time, which nowadays would be, you know, period features, but for them was, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this really sleek and getting away from the Victorian architecture. And it's interesting how the Victorian architecture is viewed in the novel. It's something that's very old fashioned, something that nobody wants anymore. And when the estate agent comes to look at Tom and Edie's house when they want to sell it and he's like oh well you know people don't really want all this you know or anymore they don't want the passageway to clean they don't want all this sort of dusty mm-hmm. corners and all the rest of it um, and it's interesting to see that that house at the time would have been 50 years old and to think that that would that was that considered to be outdated and um whereas nowadays obviously we would really prize that so whereas we'd look down on stuff that's 50 years old yeah now, so, exactly yeah. who knows maybe 19 19- 60s, 70s houses will be back in vogue eventually. I, I can't imagine that they will, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, I did enjoy that. And, I, and because it's written at the time, obviously it's all very natural. Whereas if it was a, if it was written now and set in the past, there'd be all these sort of heavy handed references. And, yeah. Um, or, or, or just it would, they obviously wouldn't be able to make it as natural as it was being written in the 30s. No. But it was just, you know, a joy. Both of them are a joy. I yeah, think. yeah, and um, I can now reveal that it was Green Gates that made it onto my <laughs> list. <laughs> so I was but... thinking that it wouldn't do now because you were talking about him being a snob. I thought, oh, maybe he didn't like it then. <laughs> well, I think because I also found Mr. S- Mr. Stevens in, in the fortnight in September was a bit of a snob himself as well. <laughs> um, and also, he was very cared a lot about what people thought about him. In, in, was so upset about leaving that club. Um, Secretary of the club, whatever. I just think, I just think it's not, it's not really a criticism of the novel so much as I think they'd be so much happier if they were a little less worried about what other people thought of them. Yes, well, wouldn't we all? Mm. Yes, quite right. So many lessons we're learning today, I guys. Know. In twenty seventeen, Teal Books is basically going to be a self help <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, um, so, which are you? Go- well, actually, I know you've only read one of them this year, so that must be your favourite this year. But, yeah, um, no, I really, I, I loved Green Gates, and actually, I haven't had an experience of reading a book in quite a while where I've, I've literally, I've not wanted to put it down, and 
it was I read it in a couple of days and I just absolutely loved it and I was really disappointed when I got to the end because I just mm. wanted to keep reading and I just felt completely absorbed in their world it so came alive to me um I was, I was just and I loved the whole idea of us following these people buying a new house and settling into a new area and all of the stresses and concerns and it's it should be a, something that is not suitable for a book it should be boring but it was he just made it utterly fascinating mm-hmm. oh Rachel I should have I should have gone and bought all the IC Sheriff books I could find before Project 24 began I oh, know <laughs> well they're actually okay. quite hard to find because I did oh are they I yeah. have had a look online because I would I'd actually be very interested to know um, if anybody on, who's listening has read them about his other books because I mean for me for a very long time I've just known him as the person who wrote Journey's End um, mm-hmm. and with his book, second-hand books being very expensive I don't really feel like I can make a prospective purchase on the off chance it will be good so um, I'm not really finding a lot of information about the plots of his other books I don't think he's written that many but um so, for example, I've seen copies that are like fifty pounds of some of his books, Oof. and okay. yeah. if it's not good, I don't want to buy it. So, I'd be interested to to see if anyone else has read much more of him. And of course, there is the Hopkins manuscript, also published by Persephone, that I've heard yes. very good things about. That, but it's presumably very different, seeing as it is sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, quite interesting to see how he's moved across genres. So, yeah. you know what's. He seems to be very good on the domestic side of things. I can't imagine him writing that. But I've also seen on eBay that he's got another um, science fiction book called The Cataclysm. Ooh. Um, and the front cover of the book that I've seen is London with a bus floating in a big wave of water. So presumably it's something oh. to do with some terrible flooding situation. Um, so if anyone knows anything about those, please do let us know. Yeah, that is the good thing about Project 24. Actually, when I did it last time, um, because I was buying so so many fewer books, if that makes sense, um, it meant that the ones I'd had my own for a while that were a bit more expensive, I could afford to, to go for those. So, yeah. Mm, if anyone can recommend a nice show for Rachel, I can fight over them. But yes, for today's episode, we are in total agreement, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes and yes for Liz, and two votes for Green Gates. Yeah. Um, that's nice, 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 um, harmonious way to start the year. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't know what we're doing next time, We, um, unless I do manage to dig up <laughs> Messalina, but um, <laughs> um, we'll, I'm sure we'll think of something. And recommendations, of course, always very welcome. Always more than welcome. But um, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, happy new year. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.